0: Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world, from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, I'm a Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, and I'm standing in for this podcast's normal host, Mark Leonard. In this episode, we return to the vexed question of Brexit and the turbulent state of British politics. Of course, I don't need to tell any of my listeners that the UK is currently in the midst of the process of choosing a new leader of the Conservative Party, who will, as it happens, also become Prime Minister. And then they'll take charge of the poison chalice that has done for the last two Prime Ministers, the continuing fallout of the vote for Brexit in June 2016. So what are the prospects for the new government and indeed for the opposition and the UK's relations with Europe. To discuss these questions, I'm joined by Douglas Alexander, a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, a former senior Labour politician who served in a variety of roles, including Europe Minister and Shadow Foreign Secretary, and he's an ECFR Council member, and Heather Graeber, Executive Director of the Open Society European Policy Institute and also an ECFR Council member. So just to, I guess, get the the horse race aspect out of the way first, does either of you um, want to qualify the kind of prevailing view that Boris Johnson is
1: likely to emerge, however turbulent the process is, as the next Prime Minister? Well, my sense is the future course of Brexit is now inextricably bound up, as you suggested in your introduction with the Tory leadership contest. The formal process involves 160,000 Conservative members across the United Kingdom voting, uh, and we're down to the final two, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson. And the colloquial shorthand for how the contest looks is the only candidate who can stop Boris Johnson is Boris Johnson. But on the evidence of the opening days of this contest, he's giving that a real go. So my only qualification would be, given the opinions, prejudices and worldview of the Tory party membership, one has to presume still that Boris Johnson will emerge on the 22nd of July as the likely Tory leader and then Prime Minister. But there could still be some twists and turns in the road, those twists and turns being crashed into by Boris Johnson.
0: And Heather, from Brussels, do you get the feeling that people look with, you know, with dread at the prospect of Boris? And does that mean they look with enthusiasm at the prospect of Jeremy Hunt? Or is there more a sense of it doesn't really matter?
2: I think there's a great deal of interest in it, but they are pretty appalled by the fact that three years on from the referendum, both of the leading candidates now are still chasing unicorns at EU level. They're still promising, both of them, things that cannot be delivered, things that Theresa May tried um, and failed to get, and not really taking account of the realities of the situation, particularly the legal position, and also the fact that the British economy and indeed other economies are already being damaged by this the, the, the long delays and the uncertainty.
0: So this does indeed bring us on to the question of what, you know, what, if anything, will be different with a new leader? Because the prevailing logic, presumably, Douglas remains as it was, uh, you know, a number of options, all of which
1: uh, seem to have their difficulties. It seems to be the central part of Boris Johnson's appeal to the Conservative membership is that, as he described it on a BBC interview last night, positive thinking will make all the difference. And I think in that sense, we are um, at grave risk in the coming months of seeing fantasy collide with fact. And if you like, the rhetoric of the leadership campaign, confront the reality of negotiations with the 27 because of course there is a new prime minister that will be in place by the early summer but the reality is that new incoming prime minister will face exactly the same challenges as the old outgoing prime minister a hung parliament with no majority for the conservative party and a question about whether the ability of that prime minister to tweak the political declaration will be sufficient to find the extra votes in the british parliament Given the pretty clear and categoric statements that we've had from the Commission from the twenty-seven, that the withdrawal agreement, the 585 pages of legal text, are not open for renegotiation. And in particular, it is not open to a British Prime Minister, however many forlorn tours they make of European capitals, to unilaterally excavate out of the withdrawal agreement all provisions in relation to the Irish backstop. That is the very stuff of the Tory leadership contest at the moment. It doesn't feel to me to be the reality of what will be happening in September or October. And from Brussels, presumably, Heather, you share that view.
2: Well, the EU's three priorities have been very consistent from the beginning. They are, first of all, citizens' rights, so both um, 20, EU 27 citizens living in the UK and British citizens living in the rest of the EU. um their money, so the contributions to the EU budget and, and the other liabilities that need cleaning up. And, of course, the Irish border. And all of those elements are there in the withdrawal agreement. So the idea of renegotiating it is, OK, so how exactly are the minimal provisions that are there it's quite a long legal text, but they're still supposed to be. They were designed to be the minimum to be achieved before negotiating the really serious stuff, particularly the trade agreement and all of the complex provisions. So here we are, three years on, and we're still stuck on these three really basic and really simple, in a way, points. Um, we haven't got to the complexity, and the problem is that the fantasy that's still being spun um, by by both of the candidates is that somehow it's possible to renegotiate on these three fundamental points, which I simply don't think will happen because they're very widely accepted. The EU's unity has been tested and has has held together rather firmly over the past three years. And also, the trade issues cannot be sorted out until the withdrawal agreement is actually through. That's The EU's made that really clear. But the fantasy that's being sold to the public now is of a slightly different nature from before, um, in that Boris Johnson is claiming that that leaving with no deal means the UK can still then negotiate a trade Mm. agreement under the WTO rules. And in fact, legally, crashing out with no deal puts the UK in a completely different position. It means that the gap, the famous GATT Article 24, it doesn't apply if the UK doesn't have the withdrawal agreement. So that would mean that anti-dumping duties, for example, would apply to the UK. So the impact on trade would be much greater than doing Brexit with the withdrawal agreement. It also changes things because the UK is no longer under Article 50 of the EU's treaties. And that matters because Article 50 makes the decision about the future trade deal and indeed anything else only subject to a qualified majority vote among the member states and to ratification by the European Parliament. It has to give its agreement. Once you're beyond Article 50 and you've simply crashed out with no deal, then you need a unanimous agreement of every single one of the 27 member states. And you also need ratification by every one of the national parliaments. And the national parliaments are much less inclined to be nice to the UK than the current governments are. Uh, They're also becoming more nationalistic on issues of trade. Look at how the, the Wallonian parliament, for example, blocked CETA, the trade agreement with Canada. You could see all kinds of examples of that across the EU. So the UK would find it much more difficult to negotiate anything else after leaving on no deal.
0: Douglas, last time we spoke six months or so ago, you very presciently suggested that Theresa May might take the course of putting her withdrawal agreement to the House of Commons more than once. Mm. She tried three times in the end um, and was unsuccessful. Do you anticipate that uh, one of these Tory candidates could try that tack again? simply, you know, perhaps get some cosmetic changes to the political declaration, and then present it back to the House, claiming that he got, you know, perhaps more than he really had got, and trying again? Is that possible? And could a fourth time work under a different
1: leader? I think that is a distinct possibility. And let me come on to see why in a second. But let me just pick up the point that Heather made in terms of the move from Article 50 to Article um, 218. I mean, that represents a significantly different legal base and the political hurdles become a whole lot higher. I think we need to also recognise that we are seeing the birth of a fundamentally new political culture in the UK, where I fear facts and evidence matter less than fantasy and emotion. And I don't say that in a judgmental way. I have my own opinions about that transition. But I just think in understanding the course of what happens in the next few months, we should recognize the extent to which story, sentiment and hope are driving this leadership contest a lot more than economic statistics and legal facts or, or legal basis for decisions. There was a straightforward disagreement between Boris Johnson, one of the leading candidates, and Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, over whether it was possible under GATT to anticipate a trade agreement when you'd crashed out on no deal. It's pretty unequivocal that if you live in a reality based world, that's not an option, but that's not the world that a lot of people are now living in when they're making political choices. So I think we need humility in saying just because something is evidentially not true mm. will not itself prescribe that course of action being advocated in the months ahead. Right. And indeed, then, emotions are running extremely
0: high. Absolutely.
1: And this, this division is now the kind of prevailing division in UK politics. Absolutely. So come on to then what happens in terms of the House of Commons. Let's, for the purposes of this part of the conversation, presume Boris Johnson wins the premiership. and um, There's one scenario whereby he does not actually seek to reopen the 585 pages of legal text, the withdrawal agreement, for all the noise and and claims ahead of the contest, but instead concentrates on that 25-page political declaration. Let's just recollect that in 19 of those 25 pages, the verb consider appears. So there is a lot of, with respect, Eurofudge contained in those 25 pages. It has at times been characterised by the British government as being a solemn and binding declaration, it seems to me to be nothing more than, at best, a generalised direction of travel as far as Brussels is concerned. So truthfully, there is flexibility within the political declaration. He would then be relying Boris Johnson on his political craft and skill to deliver approximately 29 more votes in the House of Commons. Because you're right, Theresa May put the withdrawal agreement to the House of Commons on three occasions – In reality, she tried to put it to the House of Commons five times. The first time, she resiled before putting the vote. third time, she lost the vote. And the narrowest that she lost it was on the third occasion by 58 votes. So Boris Johnson somehow, between the 22nd of July and the 31st of October, would need to find those 29 MPs and move them from opposition to support. That seems to me to be a possibility. I don't think it is a certainty. You have to price in the fact that the European Reform Group of Tory MPs decide that they're not going to get anything better than under a Boris Johnson premiership. But in some ways, that feels one potential path forward um, to avoid a no-deal scenario on the 31st of October. But I think if he decides not to play that game and instead to run four-square at the withdrawal agreement... In a, as I would anticipate a likelihood of rejection by the 27, then he'll have burnt the remaining weeks that are available and is certainly on record publicly as saying he intends at that point to take Britain out on the 31st of October. So, in that sense, I think there is a pathway forward through the, the political declaration, although I don't think it's easy. I'd struggle to see any pathway forward through the withdrawal agreement and which course. Which path Boris Johnson chooses to start to walk down on the 23rd of July is going to tell us fairly rapidly how likely it is that we could see no deal on the 31st of October.
0: And if you know, if he goes down the path that you say is likely to lead to failure, or even he goes down the other path and the House of Commons takes the same view that it's taken on previous occasions, then we have a fast approaching deadline um, and and no deal. What then? What do do people expect then?
2: Well, time running out is, I think, the biggest danger in all of this because Mm. there is some flexibility there in the political declaration, as Douglas said. And there is serious concern among other member states um, about the consequences of of no deal for them, for their economies, for their other interests in, in the UK and so on. Plus, of course, the future relationship. But calculations are starting to change because the one big thing that gets ignored in the British debate is that other countries have domestic politics too. And those politics those political calculations are changing. So you've still got some member states, for example German business uh, is really uh, worried about the idea of no deal but you've got other member states where people are starting to go, you know, continued uncertainty and a series of further temporary extensions with no real game plan by the British and continued nonsense and and shenanigans um, in in British politics, this is not serving our interests either. We've got a lot of business to get through in the next months, we need to get the new uh, institutions in place, the new commission president and the other jobs, we need to get the EU budget deal done. Um, They're aiming for the end of this year, certainly first part of next year. Um, They've got a lot of business to do. And so the idea of the UK continuing to have a lot of domestic political drama that holds the EU up is very unattractive. And I think that's the the key point that is perhaps not understood. If we get to the 31st of October, or say we get to mid-October, 15th of October this year, and there's no sign of a credible plan for any kind of democratic moment in the UK, either a general election, Or a second referendum, then I can't see why the EU27 would grant an extension. Because that would simply perpetuate the uncertainty. Remember what Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, said um, after the extension to the 31st of October was granted. He said, Please, UK, use this time wisely. It's not being used wisely so far. So, where's the plan to either get to a good outcome on the 31st of October, which is Managed something, mm. or an, a plan for an extension which includes a democratic moment. But if neither of those those issues is present, the UK won't have that many friends offering something else. Right.
0: So, in effect, there are two. Assuming there is no deal as we reach move towards the deadline, there are two questions really that come up. First of all, what does the new prime minister do? Does he try and strike out for no deal, or does he somehow, either by choice or because Parliament has compelled him to? You know, look, ask for an extension, and then the second question is, is the one that Heather raised: even if he were to ask for an extension, would it be granted? But how do you see the
1: the British calculations running up to that? Point? Well, firstly, let me say I think it's hard to overstate the importance of what Heather has described as one of the fundamental failures of British negotiation over the last three years since June the twenty third of twenty sixteen. It was Robert McNamara, the US Defence Secretary, towards the end of his life who said the greatest failures by democratic governments are often a failure of empathy. And I think actually there has been a crushing failure of empathy on the part of the British government in understanding that there's politics on both sides of the channel. And if you like, there has been a continuing conceit on the part of the British that at some point economically literate German car manufacturers are going to turn up, take control of the negotiations and deliver an economically optimal deal in which Britain basically gets to keep all the good stuff from the single market and not have any of the stuff to do with migration, uh, free movement or any of the other issues, membership dues that other countries have to pay in order to benefit from the single market. And I fear that we are not yet in the final chapter of that story whereby the British government essentially is saying, we want all the good stuff, but we don't want any of the stuff you care about. And we saw that as recently as last night, where Boris Johnson gave his longest and clearest interview on his position on the negotiations, and I can assure you it was neither long nor was it clear in terms of what he was arguing for, but he was essentially saying let's take the whole issue of the Northern Irish border and put that into the implementation phase. And when it was pointed out to him by Laura Kunzberg, the BBC political editor, well actually the implementation phase is contingent on the passage of the withdrawal agreement Mm -hmm. and the Northern Ireland provisions in relation to the backstop are an integral part of the withdrawal agreement. There will be no implementation phase if we don't have a withdrawal agreement He looked at his shoes. He had no answers. So what does he now do going forward? At some point, that rhetoric is going to collide with that reality. Um, I think he may pursue the option of trying to get the withdrawal agreement through and by political craft and skill, find those extra 29 votes. I think it's very difficult for him to overtly seek A mandate for a further extension of Article 50, given the coalition that he's brought together to win the support of the Tory leadership. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think in those circumstances, you need to take very seriously the possibility of a general election. And a general election in the United Kingdom in October potentially, on a couple of different grounds. One is either Boris Johnson saying, I need to renew my mandate and I will seek a mandate from the British people to allow no deal to be pursued or to put more pressure on the Europeans. Mm -hmm. Or circumstances where enough of the Conservative Party in Parliament are deeply unhappy at the prospect of Boris Johnson crashing out of the European Union with no deal Mm -hmm. and choose to bring down the government. But it's easier to say that that will happen than to actually figure out quite how that would happen we're looking at a position where there's going to be a European Council meeting two weeks, just short of two weeks, before the 31st of October. I find it difficult to imagine that Conservative MPs would vote to bring down their own government until after that European summit. And when it's clear that nothing's going to happen and we are edging as we were towards the end of March, towards the cliff edge, it's conceivable you could find those Conservative MPs willing to vote in a vote of no confidence. But under the Fixed-Term Parliament Act... A new Prime Minister has the opportunity to try and assemble a majority within the existing House of Commons for two weeks. So at that point, you're edging very close to the 31st of October. And even then, it's open to the existing Prime Minister to accede to a general election, but to push the general election beyond the 31st of October. So if we're in a circumstance where these discussions are happening in real time, as feels to me the most likely timescale in October, there's no certainty that even if there is a majority in the House of Commons to stop no deal, we will see no deal actually being stopped. There's also a scenario whereby Boris Johnson, if he was elected on the 22nd of June, uh, July, says, literally, I'm going to negotiate with Brussels, however forlornly. I'm not going to bother negotiating with or talking to the House of Commons. Right now, the law is to leave on the 31st of October. And in that sense, he could draw the lesson from his predecessor that the very last place he wants to be is simultaneously negotiating with Parliament and indeed with the European Commission in Brussels. Mm. So an alternative scenario is that Boris Johnson simply decides his government is going to negotiate with Brussels. If they get a better deal, I have my doubts, but if they do, they would then consider bringing it back to Parliament. If they don't, they would rely on the existing statutory framework for the United Kingdom to leave on the 31st so of So the, the clock. clock would just kind
0: of run out the while the negotiations out. were yep. sort of notionally moving forward or not. Yeah,
2: yeah. The, the big danger is inertia. That the inertia position takes you by default to to no deal. And although that's yeah, that's not the desired outcome um, on the EU side, it's actually quite hard for the EU to to come in with anything else. I mean, the last time, remember, with Theresa May, it was the EU that came up with the solution, which was the long extension. And they just they they huddled together at the European Council. They came out. She was kept out of the room. Then they came out and said, "Look, we see this as the only way forward." And she was forced to accept it. Mm-hmm. Now Boris Johnson could find himself in an even first position, whereby they're going, look, time is running out, inertia, we, we can't afford this. Um, you don't have a position. You haven't decided what you want in terms of economic interests or, or indeed the future relationship uh, with the EU. Here's our solution. That's it. But it's not quite clear what that would be. And this is the tricky thing on both sides. There is still an element of game of chicken going on, which and games of chicken often end badly. They rarely end in win-win solutions. Um, so on the UK side, there's a very tricky thing that there's actually no obvious way of stopping no deal through Parliament. I mean, Douglas mm-hmm. knows the details, but yeah. um, but the various ways in which you can introduce members' bills and so on, it's not totally obvious because of the fact that mm-hmm. the legal position um, of the British government is, is essentially to leave. But also on the EU side, what more could be done to prevent no deal. It's actually really, really hard to do that. Now, that doesn't mean that they'll budge on the three big issues, mm. but they're also rather stuck. And I think this lack of time is what may push other member states. And it's the member states, really, which are critical here. The, the commission is the broker of the deal through Michel Barnier, but the member states are very much um, the decision makers in the end on, on what happens. They're not quite sure what to do either. So it's a, it's a really quite horrible situation where there isn't a brilliant solution, obvious now, because the UK is boxed into a corner and in particular um, if Boris Johnson does become the next Prime Minister he's promised to do two things simultaneously uh, which box him in even further he's promised both to get the UK out on the 1st of October and rebuild the Conservative Party and to do the latter he also needs an agreement with the EU to put the issue to bed otherwise the party will continue tearing itself up and in a general election Mm. the likelihood that the Brexit Party Nigel Farage will take a huge number of Conservative votes not necessarily so many seats, but a lot of votes, that could have a huge impact on the party, that could finish the party for a generation. So there are many different games of chicken. There's <laughs> yeah. several dem- dimensions of this je- this game of chicken.
0: Yeah, a, a multi-dimensional game indeed. And presumably, if, the, if there is an election, um, exactly as Heather was saying, the conservative line that it was taking during the campaign would have to be, you know, the hardest of lines. Essentially, it would have to be embracing no deal. Otherwise, surely it would, as Heather suggests,
1: lose... I think think one of the reasons that Boris Johnson is in a strong position, at least at this stage in the leadership contest, let's see what emerges, is the deep fear amongst Conservative MPs and Conservative members of um, the Brexit party and Nigel Farage. And, And a fear that you are seeing a structural break on the right of British politics that in the short term makes it far easier for Jeremy Corbyn to become the next Prime Minister that could represent a historic breach that could keep the Conservatives out of office for a sustained period of time. So the electoral fear that Nigel Farage, actually more than Jeremy Corbyn, Jeremy Corbyn, if you like, is a consequence rather than a cause of that terror, mm-hmm. um, uh, the, 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 the fear and terror that Nigel Farage strikes in the soul of the Conservative Party is hard to overstate. Mm-hmm. And this is a psychodrama that's been playing out in the Conservative Party for a long time. You said in your introduction, entirely accurately, that um, Theresa May and David Cameron had been seen off by Brexit. But let's also remember John Major... Um, and indeed Margaret Thatcher before her, arguably Ted Heath, were all seen off on the issue of Europe. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, this is a 40-year psychodrama. When you see recent polling indicating that a significant number of Conservative members of the party would actually prefer Nigel Farage to be leading the party, you realise the extent to which this is no longer really your grandmother or grandfather's Conservative and Unionist party. This is not a party that is any longer, in a meaningful sense, Conservative or unionist. It is an English nationalist project flying under the Union Jack. And in that sense, I think that they are deeply fearful of being in front of the country, um, other than in circumstances in which either Brexit has been delivered, or they're able to credibly, with a Brexiteer leader, offer the hardest of hard Brexits and seek a mandate from the public to that extent. So
0: we've spoken about the, the right, the fractures on the right. What about the left of British politics? How is Labour shaping up at this point? There's been quite a long-running internal debate within the party about whether to embrace a a kind of more anti-Brexit position, at least throwing itself firmly behind a a second referendum. Where do you see that dynamic now?
1: Well, I should probably declare an interest. I went and knocked on doors for my good friend and former colleague David Morton during the European elections, so I'm that rarest of rare breeds, a Labour Party member who actually voted Labour in the European elections. As I described it in the... um, Today programme studio after the elections going onto the doorstep and attempting to either explain or justify Labour's position was a bit like turning up a knife fight with a teaspoon in the sense that the sheer ambiguity and complexity of the party's present position in part explains why in Scotland we got 9% of the vote that's not 19 or alas 90 that's 9% of the vote and in that sense I suppose I am um very representative of most Labour Party members in wishing that at a much earlier stage, there had been a far clearer exposition of a clear pro-Remain position from a party that's roots lie in a very internationalist and interdependent worldview. Whether we get there in time remains uncertain. The leadership certainly, um, I think, are aware of the extent to which they are at odds with the membership But they've been aware of that for a long time and have nonetheless resisted moving, notwithstanding all the efforts of the People's Vote. So my great fear would be, frankly, that Labour's leadership will move at a point at which it's frankly too late to make a significant difference, both to the opinions of the party, but much more fundamentally to the opinions of the public. And if you want to explain the rehabilitation of the Liberal Democrats in the minds of a lot of voters, it was because there wasn't ambiguity, but clarity in terms of their position. And for the time being, Labour is saddled with a position that is characterised more by ambiguity than any kind of clarity.
2: I think one of the key things to remember is that Jeremy Corbyn is likely to have to put together a very fractious and delicate uh, set of compromises in order to form a government. Uh, The prospects of Labour across the UK getting a majority in the House of Commons are pretty dim and the Lib Dems could move from 20% to 25% at which point that's the tipping point when they suddenly get loads more seats. Greens could be up from 12%, they do an alliance with the Liberal Democrats and both of them demand as their condition for joining a minority government of Jeremy Corbyn that there is a second referendum and a more coherent worked out position on the European Union and what exactly to negotiate for. So that would really change things. But it would be a delicate coalition, one where Jeremy Corbyn's heart wouldn't be in it. And that would be obvious to Labour voters and indeed to the coalition partners. Um, That could also be quite a rocky ride. That's Mm. not necessarily a great negotiating partner for the European Union either. And that's really what the rest of the EU is craving at this point. Please just give us a serious person who's a reliable negotiating partner who actually. Has interests worked out and has a position that we can we can grapple with, and that's still very far off. Even if there were a general election, so this could go on for some time. And the the option of a second referendum is also tricky. Um, at the moment, Remain is maybe ten points ahead in in certain polls, but things can swing around as, as Douglas was saying. So much of this is about sentiment, and it's it's kind of left the the sense of. Um, what's really at stake here. There are parts of the country where you see movement of people calculating their economic interests and going, whoa, it really lies in Remain. So think about Sunderland or Middlesbrough where opinion has really shifted. But there's so much smoke and mirrors in the political debate, so little presentation of either the legal facts or the economic realities, that it's quite hard still to have a decent referendum campaign or even a general election campaign, which actually sets out the real options to the voters. So the collusion may be unexpected but the, the collusion between um, chasing unicorns in the Conservative Party and a, a really uh, obscure and deliberately complicated position on the Labour Party is not serving the democratic interest of having an open debate about the interests of the country.
1: And I would just come back to Heather's earlier point because I think it's so relevant here of one of timing. There just is very, very little time. So even in a scenario whereby there is a general election... It is eminently conceivable that that general election could be after the 31st of October, at which point Britain is out. Now, you asked the question... Would there be a willingness on the part of the EU27 at that European Council that's taking place in the middle of October, on the 17th and 18th of October, to grant an extension in circumstances where there was a general election that was called? I think that is a scenario, truthfully, in which there would be a willingness on the part of the EU27 to think again. But we're at grave risk of the, the calendar simply not working. And in that sense, as I say, my instinct, and it's a political judgment, You won't see Conservative MPs voting to bring down their government until after that council meeting on the 17th or 18th. It's possible, but I just think the discipline of saying, let's see if somebody falls, let's see what happens in this game of chicken, is going to be very real during the autumn. Once you're beyond that EU council meeting in the middle of October, it's very difficult to make the calendar work, either in terms of a general election or in terms of an extension anticipating a people's vote, or even avoiding, by legal means, the um, inevitable departure of the United Kingdom, other than on the grounds on which it's set at the moment. Mm.
0: I mean, I feel often in the UK, as if we've been having this kind of conversation for you know, a long time, and each time we come back to it, there's a similar state of uncertainty and ambiguity. But now it does begin to feel as if, one way or another, this issue probably will end up being resolved in the next in the next six months. Do you think that's right or except that it
2: won't be resolved because this is just the first part. This is simply the mm. basic conditions the for <laughs> actually leaving. Yeah, there's, yeah it's, it's the only about divorce. There's no alimony, there's no child support, There's nothing else has been decided. Um, we will have another 10 years, I would guess, of negotiations mm. with the European Union. This is going to be um, going to dominating be every, every six government <laughs> for years. Because <laughs> there's trade to sort out, there's more stuff about citizens' rights, it's not all just a done deal. There's going to be mutual recognition of qualifications, uh, there's all of the issues to do with aviation and transport and medicines and, and Etc. 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 None of which has been really touched in the past three years. So this monumental waste of time that's gone on um, over these shenanigans is really a disservice to the British people and also to the other EU citizens, um, because all of this will keep dominating British politics. People will get completely fed up with it, but there's actually no way out.
1: There are there are issues beyond the Irish border we might want to think about. I heard Enda Kenny quite early on in the negotiation process say in a very calm and gentle and friendly manner, it's always easier to get what you want in a negotiation if you know what you want in a negotiation. And frankly, that if you like, is is the most accurate characterisation of the British government's position over the last three years. There's been no consensus in the British cabinet, there's been no consensus manifestly in the British Parliament, and it's not unreasonable for Europe at this point to be saying what do you guys want? Now what worries me is, if you look at the timescales, let's Agree, we've got a new conservative leader on the 22nd of July. House of Commons is going on uh, recess for five weeks. Europe generally has most of August off on holiday. My real fear is that on the 1st of September, everybody is going to come back to their desks and realise the extent to which we're almost exactly where we were in February of this year, looking down the barrel of eight weeks until a fixed deadline the tolerance and understanding of our European partners has begun to drain away because we've already been through the process of an extension for all the reasons that Heather describes. But in that sense, I think that's one of the reasons why, certainly at the most senior levels of Whitehall, there is a growing awareness of the very real prospect of no deal, whether by design or by default at the end of October. And my sense is that that urgency is only really going to be understood in the broader population and in the business community in the autumn of this year when everybody com- comes back from holiday and realizes that we're living a version of groundhog day albeit with a new prime minister hmm. seems uh, it seems all too plausible thank you both very
0: much that was really uh, perhaps not optimistic but certainly very <laughs> illuminating <laughs> Um, assessment of, of where things now are. Traditionally, we close our podcasts with our uh, bookshelf segment where we mention to our listeners any things that we've been reading recently that they might be interested in, whether on this or any other subject. So is it, Heather, is there anything that you've...
2: I would recommend a book by Luke van Middelaar um, on, in fact, there are several books by him on the European Union, um, and particularly taking a historical view and his own experience uh, working as an advisor to the president of the European Council. It's a good read. And he's quite thoughtful about it. And he, uh, what I like about him is he's not there to blow the trumpet for the European Union. He's really trying to see how is this political animal working? How is this political animal behaving? Um, and that's a really nice insight.
1: Thanks. Um, at the weekend, I was reading the latest edition of Foreign Affairs and a new signature essay by Fried Zakaria called The Self-Destruction of American Power. And if you like, it places some of the challenges that um, Europe is engaged in, not just with Brexit, but with other uh, challenges in a much broader context and basically says the world that we've all grown up with over the last 75 years, the ideas and norms that came with the post-war world that we encountered, is really rapidly disappearing around us and obliges you, when you read the essay, to think we're going to be in a very different world in the next 25 years than the last. Great. Thanks, thanks both
0: very much. That's it for today's podcast. We'll be back again next week. In the meantime, thanks for listening. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Wiebke Evering, and the researcher is Jonathan Hacking.